Let's open our Bibles to the book of Amos, the first chapter. Now, the first verse is an introduction to the book. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now then, we'll just read that one verse because when we begin with verse 2, we'll find it uh, has to do with other things that take place in a different section of the beginning of this book. But uh, we want to consider some things about this introduction. First of all, it says the words of Amos. We know the words of Amos were divinely inspired, that God gave him these words because God told him to go and prophesy to Israel. I want us to consider, first of all, uh, his country. If you notice here, it says, uh, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa was uh, a little place about six miles south of Bethlehem, about 12, 14 miles south of Jerusalem. So it was in the very near country of the place of Christ's birth and uh, also the holy city of Jerusalem, Tekoa. If you want a reference for that, you have Second Chronicles 20, verse 20. It will tell you about it. Let me read Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 20. It says, And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood, stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe in his prophets, so shall ye prosper. So Jehoshaphat in uh, those days stood and encourage the people to put their faith in God. And this was, we'd go back and study the history of what was taking place and they were in a strait and needed God's help. And he said, believe in God and just trust Him with it. And that, which is good advice at any time of trial. Just to show you what country is, what part of the country he was from. Now then, his secular calling was a herdman. He says here, a herdman of Tekoa. And when you get over in the seventh chapter You might want to read it, verse 14. It tells a little bit more about his occupation. It says in verse 14, Then answered Amos and said unto Amos, I I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. The sycamore fruit was a wild fig. So his occupation was not only a herdsman, but it was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And uh, as far as the wild fig is concerned, uh, he had to... It had to be punctured before it would ripen. And so that was his job, is to take care of the herdsman job and also to uh, take care of the sycamore fruit that he speaks of in chapter 7, verse 14. By the way, if you will remember that God always uses men that are busy when He calls them. He doesn't take some fellow that's lazy as all get out and call him to preach. And that's really been the, the uh, history of God's call to men uh, throughout the ages. He called Moses at the backside of the desert doing what he was supposed to be doing. He called uh, Gideon. At, Gideon was a, at the thrashing floor, remember? Thrashing wheat to hide it from the uh, enemies that were coming and put them under the oppression they were under. So he was busy. If you remember, David was what? Tending his father's flock of sheep. See, God doesn't want lazy people in His service. He wants people that will do something. And he knows if they're doing something secular, they'll possibly do what he wants them to do in the other realm of things. John the Baptist, he was in the desert. Peter was in the fishing boat. 
Paul was going about doing his thing, and Amos was a herdman and gather of sycamore fruit. So as far as his uh, calling is concerned, we see not only was he uh, busy, but he was not among the popular of men, of the of society. And neither were any of these that we mentioned. I mean, uh, if you'll find... If you think of his calling, God calls men of low estate a lot of times and not the high ups. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let me read this for you. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. Well, let's read verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He didn't say not any, but not many. Dr. Dehan used to say, and Dr. Dehan was a medical doctor of years gone by. And anyway, he used to say, I was saved by that one little letter, M, because God didn't say not many. I mean, not any, but not many. So that did not exclude some. And he was uh, very high in his profession as a medical doctor. And yet he surrendered to preach. You don't find usually a medical doctor or a lawyer or or a governor or someone of a, a reputable occupation uh, that's called to preach. But once in a while you find one. And that's why he's saying. But he says, But God has chosen, we have First Corinthians 1 verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things uh, which are mighty. And he goes on and on about not calling, <clears throat> as we said, men of high social standing or great prestige in some ways or another to be his uh, ministers. Moses, of course, was not one of those kind. He was a a shepherd too. And he was a a man of work and of labor. And Gideon was. David was tending his father's sheep. John the Baptist was at the backside of the desert. And we mentioned Peter. He was out there fishing uh, in his fishing boat. And Paul. And though Paul was well educated, he was still not... uh, one that you would consider to be uh, above others in that realm, but on the other hand, he was well enough educated that he was not an ignoramus as well. And uh, he was said he was very well educated. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. So we want to point out that, and also that God desires His servants to do His work naturally. He doesn't want them to be somebody else. He wants them to do their work naturally. Moses was called to do that, and these that we've cited. And Amos said he was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And so we find that he was not trying to make a pretense of being some kind of a person that he was not. And he said over there in that reference I gave you, I believe 714, he says, I wasn't a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I wasn't raised up in the school of the prophets. But God called me. God called him while he was at his work. And then the servant of God must speak the word of God. Notice it says the words of Amos who was among the herdmen of Tekoa. We know that God divinely inspired him to speak the words of God. And regardless of the welcome or the response, because the ones that uh, Amos was preaching to, and we'll get into his message, we're just giving you some a uh, few fine points about his, about an introduction here, but we'll find that he preached to heathen nations round about uh, Judah and Israel. Then he preached to Judah and Israel. In fact, that's the way the first part of the uh, messages are brought about. So he did it without fear or favor. He must bring the message home to the hearers. And Amos did exactly that. 
And his compass was from Syria in Damascus to Judah and Israel. From Syria in Damascus to Judah and Israel. Israel in the northern part of the land of Palestine and uh, Judah in the southern part. And though he preached from the southern part, he preached to the northern part. He went up there to preach because that was the center of their idolatry. And he got right in the middle of it. And you know, uh, he was told, if you turn to that reference I gave you at the beginning uh, of Amos 7, we read verse 14. But Amos I had told him in verse 13, look, he says, But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. So Amos was not paying any attention to where he was told not to prophesy or where he was told to prophesy. And so Amos answered Amos I, and he said, I was no prophet, neither was I the son, a prophet's son, but I was a herdman gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. And that's why he came from, the, from Judah up into Israel and prophesied, even though it was not pleasing to prophesy, especially in front of the king's court. It didn't matter to him. He went where God told him to go without fear or favor. Oh yeah, it would have been a lot more comfortable down south. But this southerner went north and preached to Israel. And when he got up there, he wasn't welcome. But he didn't let that bother him. So, uh, continuing with our introduction, this must have taken courage. Although he was a native of Judah, he went to Bethel, and this was the center of Israel's idolatry. If you have 1 Kings 12, verse 28 and 29, 1 Kings 12, verse 28 and 29, do you remember where Jeroboam set up his idolatrous worship? Let me read 28. I'd love to read the whole story, but this was we preached on this at one time. It's called a man-made religion. 1 Kings 12, let's look at verse 28. Whereupon the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. He put one in the southern part, and the one in the northern part of the kingdom. And this thing became a sin, for the people went up to worship before the one, even to Dan, and so on and so forth. And he was doing this... Jeroboam was doing this for the convenience of the people. Remember, he said, it's too hard for you to go up there and worship to Jerusalem. It's too hard for you to go there. So I'll make it convenient. I'll put a golden calf in the southern part and I'll put one in the north. And you can do as you please. That sounds familiar to a lot of preachers today, doesn't it? Make it as easy and convenient as you can because, you know, you don't want anyone to have to put forth any effort to serve God. But you see, if you're going to serve God, it takes a little bit of effort on the part of everyone. Someone said, well, you know, if I'm going to go to church, I have to drive this far or walk this far. Remember when you used to walk two, three, five miles, ten miles to church? We hardly walk two blocks anymore. You know, if the, if the store's down there two blocks and we're parked here, so we, don't get, we don't walk down there. We get in the car and drive down there. And then we walk around the parking lot more than that, trying to find a place to... How to get in the store. But anyway, that's the way human nature is today. Cut down on all the steps. I don't know about some of you, but I park as far away from the store as I can so I can get a little walk to get there. But someone, they'll go around and around about ten times to get right down there next to the door. Find one and stop and park and walk to the door. It's not that far. If you can't do that, get you a pair of roller skates. Do something. But anyway, we're living in a different world, aren't we? So... What we see is his uh, courage. We see Amos's courage. Then his contemporaries, and I'll just try to be as briefly as I can on some of this because I'd like to get into the meat of the message. His contemporaries 
He was in the early part of Hosea that we just studied, and in the latter part of Joel. So he was, uh, and, and that may teach you some of how the books should be written, because he could have been before uh, Hosea. It could have been written before. His could come in chronological order before Hosea. So he was in the early part of uh, Hosea and the latter part of Joel. I'd like for us to, let me give you just a brief uh, of what you are going to find now. In the first section of our studies now, beginning with verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 16, you're going to find, and you, if you want to write some of this down, eight vessels of wrath. Eight vessels of wrath. In other words, there's going to be eight prophetic messages to these various nations. And it's going to be Syria, and I'll give them verse by verse in a little bit. Syria, and Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and then Judah and Israel. And these eight vessels of wrath will begin our study right now. And let's, let's begin to take them up. I could deal with a lot of things before I get there, and maybe I can throw them in as we go along. But let's read verse uh, 2 uh, through uh, 5. 2 through 5. It says, uh, And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. He's saying here at the beginning that God's voice is going to roar and it's going to be... Uh, it's going to sound out and there's going to be uh, a terrible uh, shaking and uh, mourning and uh, judgment call from his voice. Now, verse 3. Let, well, maybe I better do it this way. I'll, I'll read verse 3 and I'll read verse 6 and I'll read verse 9 and verse 11. Verse 13, I'll give them to you as I go. Let's read verse 3. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Let's just stop there. Look at verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. He tells why later. Look in verse 9. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now then, verse uh, 11. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Verse uh, 13. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now then you get down to verse 4. 2, verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. You see those? So, in chapter 1, you just mark these. Just put a little 1 by verse 3. Just number them. There's six heathen nations, and then there's Judah and Israel. 1 by verse 3, 2 by verse 6, 3 by verse 9, 4 by verse 11, 5 by verse 13, 6 by chapter 2, verse 1, 7 by in verse 4 of the chapter 2, and 8 in verse 6. There's eight different vessels of wrath, we've said, that we would talk about. Syria, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and then Judah and Israel. As you look at those verses, first of all, notice that God deals with each one of them individually. And He uses this formula. He says, for three transgressions, look at verse 3, 
For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have thrashed Gilead with thrashing instruments of iron. And then he tells the judgment that will come. Now, think of this statement that is used on each in every case. And just remember it. For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now, some people have mistaken what three and four means. What does it mean? It doesn't mean for three transgressions and then four more, making seven. It means for three transgressions and then for the fourth one, that's too much. That's, they've tipped the scale. They've gone one too many. Too many. They've gone too far. And for the fourth one, God says, I'm, I, uh, your judgment is determined. The first time, if you want four things, the first time God rebuked them. The second time, God warned them. And the third time, God threatened them. And the fourth time, the rod of judgment falls upon them. So you might say it's only four transgressions totaled. He's saying for three transgressions and for four, when the fourth one happens, that's that's gone too far. We use the word, uh, that's tipped the scales. In favor of the judgment. That's, that's brought about the last... We say that's the last straw. No, we've gone just as far as we can go. That's what God was saying. For three transgressions and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And that's what he's saying. And each and every time... We've already told you the first time he rebuked them. The second time he warned them. The third time he threatened them. And the fourth time, they've gone too far and judgment falls. Have you ever said to your child, if you do that one more time? Well, they may have done it three or four times. But just say one more time. That might be the fifth time or sixth time. But anyway, then then it's going to happen. I'm going to give you a a spanking. Of course, that's not a popular word nowadays with society. But you know, the Bible teaches that if we do not correct a child, that they'll grow up to be... Uh, rebels all their lives and they need correction. We need correction. That's why God corrects us. And He deals with us as His children. It says, Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. You find that over in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, If you be without chastisement, you're not sons, you're bastards. You don't belong to it. And He says, Now no chastening seemeth for the time to be... uh, It says, Now no chastening uh, for the time seemeth to be uh, anything but grievous, but afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And so we know that it's not funny when it's not good and we don't enjoy being chastened, but if we'll listen to it, God will bring the peaceable fruit of righteousness in and through it. We've read these and we want to get into the detail of these various nations, but if you'll notice, uh, there are six heathen nations Syria, Philistia, We gave you the verses, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, and then chapter 2, verse 1. There are six heathen nations. And then, can you imagine what was happening? And we'll take this a little further as we go along. Can you imagine what happened when they got down to chapter 2, verse 4? And and Amos said this, look at 2, verse 4. He says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And then he gets on down to verse 6, and he says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Can you imagine how Judah and Israel were, God's own people, as Amos prophesied doom and judgment against all these of Syria and Phoenicia and Damascus and all of these various ones? 
They thought, boy, oh boy, we must be pretty good folks. And all these six heathen nations Amos prophesied against. And then all of a sudden, he turns to Judah. And he gives them the same message. Well, I thought we were, you know, it's like Christians said, you know, I don't mind uh, God's Word getting on this outright uh, center out here. And we can just point them out one, two, three, four, five, six. And God's people think, boy, they deserve it. They've got it coming. But when God's Word starts in with you and I, and Amos did that. He didn't neglect that. He said, for three transgressions of Judah. Judah, you're right here. And Israel's up there. And for both of you, I've got a message. And it's a message of judgment, just like it was for them. Their sin was of a different nature, but their judgment was determined as well. This is kind of opposite to what Peter said over in the New Testament. Remember, Peter says, if judgment begin first at the house of God, then where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Remember when Peter said that in one of his epistles? I believe it's 2 Peter, maybe 1 Peter, but anyway, one of his letters. He said, if judgment begin first at the house of God, it is 2 Peter now, if I can get it in my mind, I believe. But anyway, uh, he says, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Well, Amos uh, reversed that. He starts with the ungodly and sinner, and then he brings judgment to the house of God, doesn't he? You see, Amos Amos is very uh, intelligent in what he's doing, in the way he's bringing forth the message. Had he started out with Judah and Israel... They'd have said, what about these wicked nations that have treated us so? But when he started out with those wicked nations and how they had thrashed Gilead with thrashing instruments of iron and cruelty and war, warfare. Remember in verse uh, 3, Thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Damascus. Now, actually, Syria is addressed through Damascus because it goes on down in the last part of verse 5, and the people of Syria shall go into captivity under Kerr. So you... When we get into the detailed study of each one of these sections, you'll see that there's more involved than just the one that the name that's used to address the nation and the whole people of that area. But he said, what did he say in verse 3? He says, because they have thrashed Gilead with the threshing instruments of iron. It shows their terrible sin was cruelty and warfare. There is such a thing as war, warfare being fair. There's certain things that should not be done in warfare. And we go on down and find that in some cases they had punished the women. And women with child, they had cut them open. They had killed children. They were cruel in all their the nature of things. And we'll get into them as we go along. But this particular cruelty in verse 3 was that they uh, had threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. And because of that, the judgment was determined. Look at verse 4. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazel, which shall devour the palaces of Benadad. I will also break the bar of Damascus, cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon, and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden, and the people of Syria, that's who's being addressed for their cruelty and warfare, shall go into captivity and to curse, saith the Lord. Let's stop there. So you see the very first one of these, how it's addressed. Cruelty and warfare is what's pointed out. And the fire here, almost uh, time and again he used the symbol of judgment, a fire is a symbol of judgment. Well, I will send a fire into the house of Hazel, which shall devour the palaces of Benadad. I will break also the bar of Damascus. And so he uses these different terms to signify the judgment that he's about to bring. Look down in verse 6 now. Here's the second one of these heathen nations. For three transgressions 
And thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now look, what? Because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. This was what they did. Slave trade. Their sin was slave trade. And if you'll notice, Philistia or the Philistines in the last part of verse 8 are the ones that's being addressed through Gaza. You have to take these. Your Bible probably has a kind of a paragraph form, as does mine. So if you notice, verse 6 through 8 is kind of a paragraph in your Bible. You see how that's marked in your Bible, most likely. Division in some form or fashion. So you see that the Philistines, the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. That's the last part of verse 8. So when we say Gaza in verse 6, we're talking about the Philistia and or the Philistines, and they were engaged in slave traffic. Let's read this section again. 6 through 8. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity, to deliver them up to Edom. <coughs> but I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof, and I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him that holdeth the scepter from Ashkelon, and I will turn mine hand against Ekron. These are other cities of the Philistines, and the remnant of the, the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord God. So you see what God does? Now lest we get lost in the shuffle here, remember I said there were eight vessels of wrath. We've already read the eight vessels of wrath. There were six heathen nations, remember we gave you those, down to chapter two, verse one, and then two other nations, which was Judah and Israel. And eight vessels of wrath have to do with the vessels of wrath or his judgment upon these eight different nations. Six of them heathen nations. The last two, Judah and Israel. And if you get that in your mind, I'll just, uh, I've given you a verse to mark, and if you just put one beside verse three, did you mark those? Look at one verse three. Just put a one beside there. You can number these. Two besides verse 6, three beside verse 9, four beside verse 11, five beside verse 13, and then you go to chapter 2. And you put six by chapter 2, verse 1, and then seven by verse 4, and eight by verse 6. You have those marked? And those are the, and you don't have to mark them because each time you find this same. Uh, theme, you might say, over and over again. Every one of them will be marked any, anyway in your Bible by this what statement. For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And they're all marked by that beginning. So you don't have to uh, worry about not finding them because you can find them. That identifies the beginning of each uh, vessel of wrath or judgment uh, message that's, that will be brought or judgment that will be brought upon these eight nations. So if you just follow it down, you can find those. You know, when you want to study your Bible, it takes a little bit of effort. So get your pen, pencil, and and you can write one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and you've got the whole story of what we're talking about. These vessels of wrath, of judgment. And it, in each one, it gives you why God judges them. And then it tells you how God will judge them. Not only why, but how. So let's look at the third one of these, it's in verse 9. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of tires, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered the whole, up the whole captivity to Edom, 
and they rem- and remember not the brotherly covenant, but I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Th- just those two verses. And what was their guilt? What was wrong with them? It was delivering up their brothers. They remembered not the bl- uh, brotherly covenant. They wouldn't stand for e- with each other and for each other. In fact, they did right the opposite. They delivered up the old captivity to Edom. They didn't stand by those that were in trouble. You know, it's a sin when we do not stand by our brothers as Christians. And they wouldn't stand by them. Remember back in the days of Moses and Joshua, after Moses was gone, and there were two and a half tribes that said, we want our inheritance on this side of Jordan. We don't want to go over Jordan. And Joshua told him, he says, all right, if you don't want to go over, he says, you do this. You take claim your inheritance on the other side of Jordan. But he says... You must go over and fight for your brethren. And then you can return to that part of the country if that's what you want. And, and here's the text. And he says, if you will not do so, be sure your sin will find you out. In other words, if you do not keep up what you're supposed to do for your brother, be sure your sin will find you out. The context of that, uh, be sure your sin will find you out, is the sin of not doing what you're supposed to do. You know, a lot of people say, well, your sins are going to, Skeletons are going to come out of the closet and your sins are going to find you out. Well, that's also true. But this was the sin of neglect that was that the context of that sin is from, or that statement is from. You know, most evangelists will take a context like that and they'll say, be sure your sin will find you out and they'll preach on all your sins that are hidden. Well, that's well and good. But the real context of it is if you don't go up and fight and stand with your brethren, you be sure you'll be found out because you were cowardly and you didn't help them. Does it hurt to keep the Scripture in this context? Remember in the last part of Joel when we said that multitudes, multitudes, Joel 3 verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. That's not inviting people to save. That's telling them the day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment, <coughs> is near because this is a valley. The verdict is already in and they're going to be judged. And we gave you where and over in the book of Revelation, that's true. So, to take this uh, Joel 3 verse 14 out of its context and say multitudes, multitudes are in the valley of decision and the... the uh, the uh, day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, as if the day of the Lord is the day for them to be invited to be saved. The day of the Lord that we studied in Joel 3 is a day of what? Darkness and gloominess and judgment? A day of terrible day of vengeance? So we have to understand what the day of the Lord is. He's not inviting people to be saved. He's telling them they have not been and they've refused Him and judgment is imminent. You know, there's so many scriptures taken out of their context. We've quoted two. Multitudes, Joel 3, verse 14. Also this one. We're going to find some more in the book of Amos. This one that we just studied. In the book of uh, Amos, where it says, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. The section we're dealing with is verse 9 through 10. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom, and remembered not the brotherly covenant. So we're saying that it's a sin not to stand by your brother. But I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Now look at the last two, and we'll try to conclude these last two in the first chapter, so that we'll have the completion of it. In verse 11 it says, Thus saith the Lord, 
For three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now what was their problem? Because he did pursue his brother with a sword and did cast off all pity and his anger did tear perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Now what was his terrible sin? We're talking about Edom. Her hatred of Israel. Her hatred of God's own people. Because he did not... He did, he did pursue his brother with a sword, his hatred for his brother. Edom is symbolical or speaks of Esau. Esau, Edom. And what did he do? He pursued his brother with a sword. Cast off all pity. And he kept his wrath forever. Her hatred for Israel. Now then look at verse 13. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have... Look, here's that terrible thing that we mentioned a little bit ago for their cruelty, unjustifiable cruelty. Look what they did. Because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead that they might enlarge their border. Killed all the babies even before birth and the women with the child. And I will kin- But I will kindle the fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour the palaces thereof with shouting in the day of battle with a tempest in the day of a whirlwind, and their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, saith the Lord. They were trying to enlarge their border, and they were condemned for their unjustifiable cruelty. We cannot imagine how cruel that men can be, but we find that it's even so, that there, are that kind, that there is that kind of cruelty that exists. And if you'll remember, Ammon was, the Ammonites came from uh, an illegitimate relationship of Lot with his two daughters, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Remember when Lot escaped from from uh, Sodom and his two daughters got him drunk and they slept with him and he con- they conceived with two two sons by their father and they were these two tribes were condemned, condemned, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And here the Ammonites show their colors. And if you remember Ruth was of the descendants of Moab, of the, of the Moabites. But she found grace in the eyes of who? Of Boaz. Symbolical of all of us being sinners, finding grace in the sight of the Lord. But by the law, she was under condemnation because God had condemned the, both the Moabites and the Ammonites. But when she came along and she reaped in the fields of Boaz, and Boaz was uh, symbolical, well, he was the, her savior. And he released her from the curse and the judgment that she was under. And he permitted her by marrying her to be brought into the, his family. And that's symbolical of you and I being joined to Christ, even though we were under the curse of the law. And we're redeemed, and, and it's all by grace. Well, we won't have time to go into that, but we thought we would let that finalize the first chapter. And there's still one more of the heathen nations the Moabites, and that's in chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll talk about that. We'll pick up with chapter 2 in our next lesson. This Sunday evening, try to be here, and we'll pick up with Amos chapter 2 and, and give you some more details of the plan and the purpose of this study and how, we've, how it's worked out in such a wonderful fashion. Amos himself sets the course of what is to be given. And in this way that I just gave you, the first chapter and the second chapter down to... Uh, Verse uh, 6, I believe it was, how that his message was a message of God's judgment upon six heathen nations. We've had the introduction. We've had his call, his country, his calling. We've had uh, 
his message to six heathen nations round about Judah and Israel, and then his message directly to Judah and to Israel. And then we'll get into something else. The third chapter begins with some other... Uh, well, I won't anticipate. I'll, I'll anticipate, but not give it to you now. It might be too confusing.